Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mblibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. In our podcast, it really aims to find its subject matter and its place of conversation at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. And so today, our guest is Dr. Seth Perry. He is a professor in the Department of Religion at Princeton University, and he is the author of a book called Bible Culture and Authority in the Early United States. What one finds in Dr. Perry's book is how American Bible printing and production helped create a unique marketplace of religious and spiritual ideas during the first decades of the United States. I'm so pleased to have with me in studio Dr. Seth Perry. Hello, Seth. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you. Um, but Seth and I actually first met yesterday. Uh, we had an event here with Seth Perry. It was titled, In the Beginning, America and Bible Culture. And so part of our uh, conversation today, we'll probably look back at some elements of that uh, presentation that Seth gave here at, at the library. But just for our listeners, it's not important that you know about that event, that you attended it or watched its video recording online, because everything is going to be structured in relation to his book. So it's going to be fresh for for the new listener, as well as for people who uh, attended that event. So Seth, I've really loved your book. And one of the things that really calls out to me about the book is how important the Bible was in America in its founding years and how important the actual print culture was to how the Bible functioned for Americans. Um, thanks. So in the beginning of the European settlement of the, of the New World, um, all English Bibles were printed in Britain um, and imported. And it's not until the end of the 18th century that there are um, domestically printed English Bibles. Um, and then there's a very rapid expansion of, the, of that market. The English Bible had been controlled by the English Bible patent, which just was the crown giving permission to different printers, uh, a handful of, of printers, to print English Bibles. And in the American context, that just gets rejected um, along with, uh, with the revolution. Mm-hmm. And then you have the expansion of different printers competing in a marketplace um, for, uh, for, for buyers. In the course of that competition, they begin to expand the types of content that they are putting in their Bibles to draw attention to them. And that, I think, has an effect on then how the readers themselves are able to interact with the text. So you have a lot of um, cross-references, commentaries, and things that are built in, and sometimes random sort of trivia things that are inserted into the Bibles so that individuals can access what is a vast body of theological research and um, commentary on the biblical text in a condensed form in their own Bible. So you don't have to be, um, you don't have to go to Harvard, right, to, mm-hmm. in this time period, and train as a minister to think you can understand and to approach the Bible itself um, because you have access to all of those kinds of materials in condensed form. Um, and the expansion of that access at the same time that the sense of Americanness is, is developing is a way of thinking about what the Bible means and how it's important in the, in the time period. So another point that, that comes out in your book um, that I thought was so fascinating is around this question, and it's in your title, of authority. And what is giving authority to the new American republic, you indicate, is text, really. Uh, America is founded in, in writing, right? And we're, we the people, right? Um, right? That phrase 
creates the people. They didn't exist before, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea that the the individual colonies have some things that they share, right? That there is a that there is a people there um, across the colonies um, is an idea that's created out of the with the words, right? And the Bible itself is the is the model for that kind of importance for for a text, right? The reverence for the Bible or thinking about the Bible as as authoritative is the mark of Christendom, right? Uh, is the mark of of that notion of something that's shared, right, mm-hmm. among uh, among Christians. In addition to that expansion of the the print presence of the Bible, this notion that individuals have uh, the authority to approach it themselves and then do something with it, right? Cite it um, to make theological points or to make to win arguments or to start arguments or to to uh, make a claim for themselves um, on on the text. That kind of um, personal access to the, the the authority that the Bible offers, right, is a new thing um, in the early nineteenth century. Uh, this is from your book, Seth, and in a chapter called "Creating the American Bible Reader." And I'll just read this little bit from it. Quote, between 1777 and 1840, American printers and publishers issued at least 1,100 editions of New Testaments and full Bibles. Uh, That, to me, is extraordinary. This is a a radically changing industry. Uh, Absolutely. Um, That scale and the scale of the variety of, of those books that you're getting, it's unprecedented in this period. So when we're talking about the expansion of the Bible market in America, um, uh, and a lot of this work was done by a scholar uh, named Paul Gutyar uh, in Indiana in a book called um, uh, An American Bible. And that has to do with the changing technologies um, over that period. So something like stereotype, we talk about a lot um, as uh, important in the uh, expansion of that market. Um, previously, when you make a book, you have individual letters that are that are the type, and you, you set them into the words onto a page, um, into a block of, of type. And then when you're done with this book, you break that type down and uh, use it for other things because printers can't afford to mm. hold on to multiple, multiple sets of, of type. And the advent of stereotype just means after you've set all those letters into a block, you can just make a plate out of that, and then you just have the page. And then once you break the type down, you still have that um, that plate. And so then you can just keep making books off of the same thing, and you've saved the labor costs of having someone reset it. Mm. The first stereotype Bible was from uh, 1816, English Bible. And that really begins an acceleration of the market. So uh, if I'm correct, this means that there's a lot of different makes of Bible during this period. Yeah. Um, so if, if I have a Bible in my house, it may not look exactly the same. The pages may not read exactly the same as some, my neighbor's Bible might. Last night, we talked a bit about paratexts. Um, mm-hmm. That's a, a word in scholarship that is useful for thinking through um, what's what's different about different there's different books. So the paratexts, um, this is a scholar, uh, Gerard Jeanette, who talks about the things that offer thresholds or entry points into a text. So the text of the Bible in that era would almost always be the King James. So the text itself doesn't really change. It's the King James text. But the paratexts around a given biblical, a given version or edition of the King James change and uh, vary dramatically. So those paratexts would be the things like guide words at the top of the page that tell you what the, what that page is about in the Bible, um, the cross-references. Um, the sort of ideal behind cross-references is that they're not adding anything to the text, that you're just taking uh, this part of the Bible to explain another part of the Bible, so this thing has to do with that thing. But that act itself is an act of interpretation, right, that's been brought to the text. The different versions of cross-references vary dramatically. Not mm-hmm. everyone agrees that this verse is uh, means the same thing as that verse or goes mm-hmm. with it, right? Less common, but also um, very widespread, are 
extensive commentaries on a given page, right? So you have things in the margins or footnotes, right, that where a scholar is explaining to you what this what a, what a given thing means. And also images. So the, the images will highlight for a given reader what's important um, in the text. And sometimes what gets illustrated in a, in a Bible um, doesn't necessarily have to do with what religious thinkers or, or might think are like the important parts. Um, often they have to do with what uh, makes a good picture, right? Um, or what different um, booksellers or artists think will be attractive to to readers. A lot of larger Bibles in this time period that we're talking about are published in pieces. So you mm. would subscribe to it sort of like a magazine, right? And you would get like a piece, you get the full Bible in, you know, uh, 20 or 30, um, what are called fascicles uh, now, but like it's like getting an issue and you collect all the issues, right? Mm. And then you would take them to a binder and have it bound at the end once you'd gotten them all. And many of the publishers or, or printers who are offering Bibles in that way would um, advertise that you get an illustration um, in each issue, basically. So then the thing that determines what gets illustrated is that it's, you know, one-twelfth of the Bible. If we're doing 12 issues, then you need, an, you need 12 illustrations. And it doesn't really matter what they are if they have to fall in that next section of the book. So. And then wow. when you have the whole thing, and then when you're flipping through, and this happens to me now, even in the archive, when you take a book that has a plate, like the images, right, those are often printed on different paper, and they look different, and they feel different. So if you're just flipping through the book, you land on these pages or these passages that have an image with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes, to a reader just coming to the text, that becomes important or the thing that you notice, right? right. And all of that's contingent, right, on how the text was put together, um, mm-hmm. not on, you know, what a particular commentator or reader might have thought was a really key part of the text. Wow. So if I'm understanding you correctly, for some people, the Bible came to them as a serial, in, in a serialized yeah, some, form? It, yeah, it was a, a common way of doing that, yeah. yeah. It, made it, it made it affordable. First of all, it, it gave, if you have subscribers, right, it gave publishers the capital to kind of keep issues coming out. Um, and it made it affordable if you're buying it in pieces. So, like with TV, did they ever try and be dramatic about it, sort of leave you hanging? Um, like, what's, what's going to happen to exactly. Daniel? That's a really good question. I wonder. I, I, should, I should look for that more, cliffhangers. In it. it would be interesting to, to, to note. Um, you're a professor of religion at Princeton University, and you teach a course called American Scripture. And I believe that you uh, include some discussion about Mary Baker Eddy uh, within that course. So I'm interested, how does Mary Baker Eddy, as a religious writer, a creator of religious text in the 19th century, relate to this larger theme of uh, Bible printing and the role of the Bible in, in, in culture at this point. How does she fit in t- with American scripture? Um, she has such a, a, a very strong sense of the importance of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And during my time here, I've learned, I've learned so much more um, about mm-hmm. how uh, that attention to text and to the Bible itself um, along with or, um, or seeing the Bible through science and health, how that mattered so much to her. Um, her early attempts to print the text, you and I were talking uh, that she has trouble working with, with different printers and there are mistakes, but she's very conscious of this. And mm. um, at the moment of it being stereotyped um, for the first time, um, I know that the, the, the library here holds the, the plates, the stereotype plates, which is very, very exciting to, to know that those exist. Uh, but she's aware of the importance of getting the text out, right, mm. um, and, and getting it in people's, in people's hands. And that is such a clear manifestation of this legacy of the importance of the of the material um, Bible itself, and then also, I don't know of a tradition which has the um, 
the, the the text itself uh, ordained as as a, as pastor in, in in the church. So in Christian Science Science and Health and and the Bible are the are the pastor of the of the church as a as a unit, having this kind of authority through a reader, uh, but not through someone who is um, uh, sermonizing on it right um, every week. And that's that's an interesting way of of grounding in the text. You know, it makes me think about Mary Baker Eddy's understanding herself in relation to text because. She says something to the effect, those who look for me elsewhere other than in my writings, um, they'll lose me rather than, than find me. So the, um, so the text is really everything. So she's really trying to disabuse people of looking to her as a, as a personality, um, as a source of, of authority, but to, to find her significance in what is in her, in her text. Yeah. How does that connect to uh, how text is being uh, thought about, particularly in relation to the Bible, in the establishment of America and in America's relationship, really, with understanding and respecting text as authority. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a great question and a great way of thinking about that. The community that she wanted to found was not around her, right? It becomes, yes. it's around the text, right? Right. And paying attention to science and health and paying attention to the Bible through science and health um, or with is what constitutes the church, right, for, for her, not, right. not her presence. Um, and similar things um, are, are present in other, in other traditions that are founded around the text. And that all comes back, I think, to that, that we the people, right, like that the text right. creates the community and then being invested in the text. This is the thing that everyone shares, right, that brings you into that community. In your book, you, you talk a lot about um, an idea called scripturalization, and that's a really fascinating concept about, uh, as I understand it, how people are taking scripture and then applying it in other contexts. But if you could elaborate on that and can give us a picture of what was going on in terms of how people were using the Bible through this process, through this idea in, the, in these early decades of the United States. So scripturalization as a term um, comes from the work of a, scholar, a biblical scholar named Vincent Wimbush, whose work has been super important for me. And what Wimbush wants to do is push scholars away from thinking about scriptures as finite, sort of definable um, things and to think about them more as a pro- by processes, right? And and here when we're talking about scripture, we're talking about not just the the Bible, but in a broader sense, the texts um, uh, that are used in ways that, or thought about in ways that make them special. The important parts of scripturalization or the scripturalization um, that is the Bible in this time period are really about citation. So reading mm-hmm. is personal in a lot of ways, unless you're reading aloud, which was common enough in the time. But citation is something else, and that's referring people back to the text in a way that is authoritative in itself. And every time that someone is doing that, they're making a claim both about the text and about themselves, right? And about the importance of the text, but about the way they're using it also is, is making a claim. The citation that I'm really most interested in has to do with individuals in their daily lives on kind of an mm-hmm. ad hoc basis. Like mm-hmm. when something happens to you, that you know that well, that really makes me think of this moment in um, you know in Matthew, right? And that and then making that connection, that's scripturalization, right? And the and, and the recogni- recognition that that connection is meaningful and important is what maintains both the status of the Bible and the status of the person who is um, having that thought or making that connection. And that's the kind of citation and lived experience that I think is the is the most interesting. 
just want to uh, quote from Mary Baker Eddy and just see how this uh, sort of stands up as an example of scripturalization. And this comes right at the beginning of a chapter in Science and Health called Science of Being. And uh, she begins this paragraph, quote, In the material world, thought has brought to light with great rapidity many useful wonders. With like activity have thoughts, swift pinions been rising towards the realm of the real, to the spiritual cause of those lower things which give impulse to inquiry. Then she goes on to uh, explore this idea a little bit further, saying, Materialistic hypotheses challenge metaphysics to meet in final combat in this revolutionary period. Like the shepherd boy with his sling, woman goes forth to battle with Goliath. End of quote. So um, a couple of things that stood out to me from that are, one, this idea of revolutionary period, this sense of uh, America as being revolutionary at its, at its core, um, and Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy being set in that environment. And then this uh, reference to the shepherd boy, to, the, um, to what seems new and, and young um, and small, but having the real power that's coming out of that uh, revolutionary spirit. And then woman goes forth to battle with Goliath. How, how does that fit into this larger story that you've been telling about um, what's going on with with Bible culture in the United States. Yeah, it seems like a um, after after talking to you this these, these last couple of days, I feel like I should have had a another like coda to the book that went into <laughs> went to the late nineteenth century and just and just had her as like here we go. Um, yeah, uh, this is this this is the outcome. Um, I mean, if Goliath there is uh, is the tradition of of biblical commentary and authority built up over time, um, uh, and you know um, she is she's armed with the. With the with the text itself and her understanding of the text, and is able to represent it um, as authoritative to others, right? And and as a woman in the late nineteenth century, um, that is that's an that's a, that's an advance, right? That's a new that's a new thing, right? So she's able to use and cite the Bible and compile all the the kinds of, of cross references and commentary and things that she's thinking about into a work of her own that is then taken as a companion as an as a as an entry point into the Bible itself. Um, she definitely is, is operating in this universe of scripturalization that, that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Seth, this has been really terrific. I, I love your book so much. Um, I wish I were young again and able to get into Princeton. I'm jealous of those people who have the opportunity to take your course there um, on American scripture and the other things that you teach. So thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on the Bible as Revolutionary Text in America. Our guest was Dr. Seth Perry, author of Bible Culture and Authority in the Early United States. If you'd like to engage more with Dr. Perry's work and ideas, we encourage you to go to the library's webcast with him. It's titled In the Beginning, America and Bible Culture. You can link to it through the episode details. Also included in the webcast is a presentation on the library's historic Bible collection, given by manager of special collections, Shanna Smith. Also, Dr. Michael Hamilton has some introductory remarks on the significance of the Bible in the life and career of Mary Baker Eddy. 
Please join us for our next episode for a discussion on current research and thought on how to communicate about religion in public learning environments. Our guest is Ben Marcus. He's with the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute, which is located at the Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Jonathan Eder. I'm honored and delighted to be your host for Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.